Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Hello, hello. I'm going to just tell you right up front that I'm having a very, very momentous and chaotic day in a sector of my life that has nothing to do with this radio show. And it's a good kind of day, one that I waited for for really more than 10 months. Uh, But as a result, my my intention is a little bit divided, and I may be slightly less well-prepared for this particular episode of The Nose than I have ever been before. But I bet we can still have a lot of fun, partly because the panel we have today is so great. Uh, We have, uh, and and very, very aptly poised to to take on the material today, uh, Raquel Benedict claims to be the most dangerous woman in speculative fiction. And who would want to gainsay her about that, particularly if she is the most dangerous woman? You see, you set up kind of a circle of danger for yourself right there. She's also the host of The Right Good, that's G-U-D, that's R-I-T-E, G-U-D podcast. Uh, Brian Slattery is arts editor for the New Haven Independent, a producer at WNHH Radio, novelist, musician, it's one of those Carolyn Payne biographies. It could go on for quite a while. So let's just, you know, let's get right down to business here. So a little bit later in the show, we're going to have a conversation, a li- not exactly your typical nose conversation, but we all seem to be kind of interested in it, in the way in which this uh, incredible tragedy uh, of Gabby Petito and the um, and, and the terrible depredations visited upon her kind of got transformed into that very specific kind of social media culture, TikTok, Reddit, Instagram, especially TikTok. Though there actually, there actually is something called true crime talk or crime talk, uh, and uh, it may have been helpful uh, in assisting in the some resolving of some details of the case. But it may also be a kind of packaging up of a real-life tragedy in a pretty slick and shallow algorithm-driven way. But I suppose if we wanted a life without algorithms, we'd have to go back to 50 years ago. Uh, Anyway, uh, but before that, we're going to talk about why, colon, that's the letter Y, Y, colon, The Last Man, uh, which is an FX on Hulu television series. It's based on the DC Comics by Brian K. Vaughn and Pia Guerra, or Guerra. Uh, The comics ran from about 02 to about 08. Developed for TV by Eliza Clark, it creates or posits a world in which everybody, and not just people, uh, but every being with a Y chromosome suddenly drops dead. Um, so you've got basically uh, the females of all the species uh, kind of uh, coming to the fore uh, and inheriting the earth. So um, I hope I described that okay. So um, uh, maybe before we begin, what, what we should add, though, as the title suggests, there is at least one person with a Y chromosome who inexplicably has survived that. His name is Yorick, um, and uh, he <laughs> happens to be the son of the person who is through a complex chain of custody uh, in charge of the presidency. Uh, so that's all a little bit odd. And he's also in the care uh, of a charmingly uh, ruthless uh, operative named Agent 355. Uh, you're going to hear a little clip of the two of them talking. Uh, Ashley Romans as Agent 355 and Ben Schnetzer as Yorick Brown. FSB or was left of it, put out a statement that Russian leaders survived. Twelve men. The big shots, the inner circle. Well, that's good, right? A crowd stormed the Kremlin. They wanted to see the men, but it was propaganda. It was bullshit. 
They overran the building. There's chaos now. We've lost contact. Um, so my mom, like, uh, won the apocalypse. That's fun. The top job. She's not even a Republican. Well, the line of succession was decimated. Your mom was speaker for an hour, then they bumped her up. Oh, wow. Speaker and president. Check that off the bucket list. Between us, you don't think it's a health risk to have a bunch of dead bodies lying around the building? That's why that area is sealed off. Okay, well, I'm just saying... Your you mother's should... prioritizing the living. <clears throat> Yorick. It's Hamlet, right? Mm-hmm. Alas, poor Yorick. A fellow of infinite jest, most excellent fancy. My dad taught Shakespeare. They named you after a dead clown. <laughs> All right. So, um... Brian Slattery, I'm going to have you get us started here because you actually know the source material very well. Um, maybe yeah, just tell us a little yeah. bit about the source material. Um, yeah, so the, the right now the show is following the source material pretty closely. Um, the comics, uh, with with a couple of interesting sort of tonal differences. So um, the comics tend to follow Yorick and his pet monkey Ampersand um, pretty closely. Like, they're your sort of point of view characters as they navigate this world in which... York and Ampersand are the seem to be the only the the, the last people with Y last things with Y chromosomes on the planet. So the, the the comics have a very like lighthearted approach to this pretty grim idea. You know that there's been this 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 real kind of apocalypse and society is rebuilding and you know everything has been thrown into flux. Um, the show is the show um, I think very wisely diverges from that. Um, it's you know it's a different world than it was when the <laughs> when the comic was made, and the show focuses much more on the like the many many uh, female characters who are around York, because um, like sort of the joke of the the comic and the show is that you know it's is that York is like kind of a kind of a ne'er do well like he he can't pay his rent and he's you know and he, he's very nice and he's very well meaning but he's often like not very bright and he's not very good at taking care of his life. And um, you know it's it's up to the the women around him to to help him out, and he's now also like you know the the uh, <laughs> possible savior of the human race, <laughs> just because he's the last person who has you know the DNA to do it. Um, but the show is is significantly grimmer, and I think also um, much more serious about its topic, which I think is a really good idea. Um, hovering around at the edges of the comic and I think that the show is going to do a better job of heading straight at those questions is the idea that you know what happens um if you get rid of the patriarchy <laughs> like all in one fell swoop what happens how do you rebuild and what can you rebuild in its place um and can you rebuild can you create a system that is better than the one that preceded it and um, the comic was very good at sort of balancing um, those ideas. You know, sort of be careful what you wish for. Slash. Also, there's a lot of opportunities here, and um, I think the show is is, is well poised to like do a, an even better job than the comics did. It it does remind me uh, of a novel uh, in recent years by Naomi Alderman called The Power, which uh, is about women suddenly acquiring this kind of lightning bolt like power that allows them in fact to dominate um, the world that they live in uh, and it raises some interesting questions about whether you know women are intrinsically nicer and better than men or whether they just 
have acquired those particular attributes by being victims of the patriarchy. So uh, it seems like we're kind of in, on similar terrain here. So, Raquel, I mean, yeah. just give me some of your general reactions. Uh, my understanding is, like me, you did not read the comic book. I have never read the comic. Uh, I'm sure it's fine. I'm So far, I've been enjoying the show. I feel like there's going to be a lot more discourse about it than maybe it's warranted because, yeah, it does deal with gender and women's issues, but I, I feel like the, I mean, the show is okay. There's not a lot to say about the show so far besides it's decent. Something that it, it is striking me and it, it's impossible to watch this without thinking about the current COVID pandemic is, I, I think that a lot of the appeal of this is this comforting fantasy that in a disaster, we will have leaders that truly are trying their hardest to do a really good job. <laughs> you know, competent leaders who like the, the acting president has a stake in the game because her kids are out there. And for some reason, her daughter has a real person job as an EMT rather than the the fake rich kid jobs that they have in the real world, like <laughs> consultants or motivational speaker or VP of public relations. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> One of those like fake jobs where they go to an office and pretend they're working and then they make more than you and I will ever make in our entire lives. <laughs> but it's this wonderful, comforting fantasy of, ah, well, people are really trying to do a good job. And I'm just imagining this why this Y chromosome plague happening and our acting president just kind of pretending like, no, everything's fine. My husband's alive here. Look, and just jiggling the corpse to make it look, look, he's dancing. It's okay. Smear <laughs> some horse paste on him. It's I'd, fine. I would actually watch that series as well, Raquel, if you want to just <laughs> that would rule. start oh, story, yeah. storyboarding I, it. I, uh, I would watch that series. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, Brian, in that sense, and I think you were kind of alluding to it, there's a way in which this series does I mean, one of the things that it does, I think, is mirror pretty closely some of the political colorings and tinctures uh, of the moment so that when the S word hits the fan, you have a degraded political system in which, in fact, I mean, pretty identifiably, there's a the president and the ruling party uh, are Republicans and have a certain set of expectations about how things are going to go and should go. Uh, but yes. uh, But just the way that uh, a whole bunch of people died in a certain sequence and there was nobody around to take their place. A character played Diane, by, by Diane Lane becomes the president. Um, and she was actually a m- member of Congress uh, going into this. Uh, and and yet there, there are a group of pretty um, recognizably sort of blonde, forceful <laughs> Republican women, including the sort of a— mi- clearly based on Meghan McCain. Right. Yeah. Well, like, yeah. My father. My father. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's a Meghan McCain, and I don't know about the woman who's suddenly discovered in Israel or wherever she is. She seems like maybe Marjorie Taylor Greene. Yeah. Uh, almost. That's, that's where my brain also went. Yeah. But Brian, say a little bit more about this. I mean, they really are sort of like they're sketching out our political system after something really ser- serious, even more serious than COVID has hit it. Yeah, for sure. And that's that's another sort of. Um, divergence from the comics which sort of you know so the 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 like the 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 couple of coincidences at the beginning of this thing that you have to accept in order for the story engine to go um those are from the comics you know the the idea that the last man alive is also the son of the president you know it's just like it's a little much right but um all of that political intrigue i think is is the result of the you know the updating and the credit for that goes 
I think more to the you know the, the, to the to um Eliza Clark you know the, the showrunner and whoever the writing team is underneath her um but yeah I mean it's I think that those that those people are really recognizable as as public figures now you have I mean you know not directly but like I I similarly I thought of Diane Lane as basically like a, a Nancy Pelosi right like she's she's been in she's been in politics for a long time um. So she has like a lot of baggage in addition to sort of being quite good at manipulating the system. Like we've seen this person before, right? Yeah. Um, it does feel a little bit 2016. I know it's oh, for updated, sure. but it feels a little bit more 2016 and the trauma that many liberal leaning people had after Trump was elected <laughs> and almost this <laughs> fantasy of like, if only all the men could die so that Hillary could win. Oh, yeah. What I wouldn't <laughs> give for that. And, and even the issues she's about, the issue with which her character is really arguing with the president at the beginning before the disaster yeah. is internet trolls, oh, not totally... like sexual assault, not, you know, abortion, maternity leave, but it's right. internet trolls. It's people posting naughty pay pay memes at her on Twitter or something. And like, that's the, that's the big <laughs> issue. So it still feels as updated. It has been updated by, at least 10 years, but it still feels a little bit stuck in 2016, 2017, that, that just wishing for something to come along and end the Trump presidency and so that we could have a woman in charge. Yeah, it's a good point, right? I mean, I, you'd, it'd, be, it'd be fun to, to know whether they, you know, whether the show writers were doing that because they wanted to have a competent leadership because that's better for storytelling <laughs> or you know whether it's whether it's this it's what you're describing where they're just like you know we're we're not going to make a show about what happens if you like if the remnants of the Trump administration are in charge. And, oh God, could you, you imagine know. Ivanka and Melania <laughs> being in charge? It would be hilarious. <laughs> very very different show, and you know it, it's hard to it's hard to imagine that those types of characters having the like uh the leadership that you need to make the, the basic plot of the comic go <laughs> you know, like it would be a very very different show right with that once that again raquel i would watch that show too the one where, where, where melania and ivanka yeah, and, and, so and whoever I. else uh, have, have to take over yeah to me one of the really interesting questions I, I don't know i think i'm about five episodes in right now and i don't really know the answer yet exactly but to me one of the one of the basic questions of leadership and presidencies in 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 real life and in fiction is to what degree it's sort of, you know, instead of Hamlet, let's talk about Macbeth for a second, because there's a way in which I think every leader is Macbeth and you wind up doing a lot of bad things that you weren't planning on doing. And then there's sort of this basic question. Well, was that sort of bread in the bone? Was that really there inside you the entire time? Or does fate in a way just take hold of you and cause you to do things that you wouldn't have ordinarily done? I thought that a lot about Obama, knowing who he was as he came in and then presiding over, you know, a lot of extrajudicial assassinations with drone strikes and stuff like that you know, right. and, and unable to, right. to ultimately get us out of the Guant right. Guantanamo situation. And I thought, so he's Macbeth, right? He's like doing a lot of stuff that as a constitutional scholar, he wouldn't necessarily have been down with. Um, and and looking at this Diane Lane character, I can't really tell. I mean, my the analog I brought up in a, as we were conversing about this is Laura Roslin in Battlestar Galactica, who starts out once again as an unlikely, an accidental president. She's about eight. She's a secretary of education when, you know, most of 
humankind gets wiped out. And and she's really good for a while. And then she, she goes Macbeth, you know. She really gets a little drunk on power and starts doing some, you know, kind of Patriot Act type stuff. <laughs> and, and I'm yeah. just – I'm wondering how they – I don't know, Brian. Maybe you could say something about how the comics handled this question. And, and then, Raquel, I'd love to know your thoughts too. Yeah, see, that, that that's just it. Like the comics didn't um, – the comics don't do a lot with that. I mean, it's 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 really like the, the the comics have very much more this kind of like episodic thing of what happens to York and Agent Three Five Five as they go on like a series of question and answer kind of episodes about like both like how they can re how they can like continue the human race and also like why is it that York and Ampersand are still are, are even survived in the first place like those are the fundamental questions that drive the comics. And the the political things are all like very much shoved into the background, much more than they are in this show. Like the comics don't actually have a lot to say about <laughs> like what the society is going to look like. Um, and, you know, it, like even just I've watched the four episodes, and like in those four episodes, they've done more with the political context than the comics did. Um, and like that to me is like what would that to me is a reason to watch the show having read the comics, you know, is that it's interesting to see what they're going to do with that particular scenario. Yeah, Raquel, I, I don't know. I mean, how are the how's the political part? In a way, I feel like if I'm going to be watching sort of generally speaking something that falls into the category of sci-fi, I don't necessarily want to have to live in the politics that I'm living in in real life. But for, for me, this is gripping enough so that I really don't mind it. How's it working for you? I mean, I, I am enjoying it fairly well so far. One thing that does strike me, though, is as fem- it is, I guess, a feminist show, but it does feel very bougie feminist, you know, very bourgeois feminist. All the women are these sort of upper crust or very competent, elite, well-to-do women. There really aren't sort of hard scrabble women around here. And I get the feeling that the show's going to focus on that perspective and, and that sort of mindset to to a bit of a weakness. I, I mean, granted, what kind of person does get to become a writer or or a show head or for for a nationally syndicated television show? You probably don't get there anymore if you're from a working class or even just a regular middle class background. So that's what it's going to focus on. So while I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing, I, I do feel a little amiss because this is supposed to be a plague about that has affected the entire human species. And what we're going to focus on is these sort of boardroom girl boss types who manage to solve problems by giving a rousing speech. Like there's a scene where the president's trying to convince a woman to get this power plant back online and the woman's saying, I can't, I can't. And the president gives her this amazing speech and and convinces her that she can, so she can. And it's this very bougie idea that the only thing holding you back is your self-confidence or your lack of self-confidence and that you just need a good talk to stop you from, to, to get you to do it. And we don't see the perspective of, okay, what is this woman who's at the power plant actually facing? Is it lack of confidence that's keeping her from getting it online? Or is it just, oh my God, everything's flooded. There's radioactive material leaking everywhere. There's legitimate material reasons why I can't do this. It's not just because I need a pep talk. Yeah, I, I read literally that. a fire in yeah. the building right now. Although I sort of, you know? I, I don't know. I'd like to go back and watch that scene because I was a little drowsy when I was watching it. But I, I, <laughs> I, I, I read that scene a little bit differently. It was sort of like 
a woman kind of speaking from the place that women have been kind of held in for decades and decades, which is to say, I have a very high level of competency about a lot of stuff, you know, and, and I am trained and I know how to do things and I can do things really well. But I've also been trained to put my family first in certain situations and, you know, to put domestic duties in situations, first in situations. And I haven't been trained just to cut that stuff loose and, and go deal with business, which is a, a, little, a little bit more the way men have been allowed to handle their lives. And I, I thought I heard that in her ambivalence, but maybe I was projecting. I mean, that's possible. I Granted, I've never run a power station. I'm just assuming that it's super hard and complicated yeah, yeah, yeah. and that you need way more than like confidence in yourself to do it. It's probably really hard. Right. Um, so there, the one the yeah, one way out, the one way out, I think, from from what you're describing is like so what the comics are very much about is about the relationship between that, that develops um, between uh, Yorick and Agent 355. And Agent 355 in the comics is probably the, like, to me, reading, when I was reading it, she was, like, the reason I kept reading the comic. Oh, like, she's, she's super cool. She's an amazing character. And I think that right now they're setting it up to have a similar thing. And I could see that the con- just the conversations alone between, like, Yorick, the, the well-meaning, clueless white dude, and Agent 355, who is this woman who has been around, like, more blocks than any of us put together... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> you know, like I could see I could see that becoming if that becomes the heart of the show, I could see them doing a lot with that. That would just, that would be like really interesting. Um, I, I love this character. Comics. I love Agent 355. Oh my God, uh, I, I'm she wild about her. So cool. But she's yeah. she's so cool. But she is pers- basically the person who gets the president to do a drone strike when necessary. In other words, Absolutely. there's, there's oh, a way. Yeah, in- she's the Terminator. <laughs> it is the woman of action. Right. She blew up that other helicopter. <laughs> so, oh, so, yeah. Yeah. so, yeah, that, that is, that's who she is. And, and so if we're going to sort of – if I'm going to sit here and say, well, Obama got lured into doing stuff like extrajudicial drone strikes, well, yeah, because there were people like Agent 355 saying this is the only way we can handle this. So as much yeah. as I love her, uh, I'm not necess- I'm, I'm not 100% convinced that she's a force for good or maybe she's the necessary force for good or something. She's certainly a force. She's a force. <laughs> yeah, she, she has one setting and it's murder. So before we run out of time, we, we should also talk about something, an adjustment that they did make from the comic strip uh, or the comic book, excuse me, uh, and, and that is bringing forth uh, the whole question of trans persons. Uh, and yeah. uh, so Raquel, I, first of all, you want to get into that a little bit? I, I mean, a little bit. I, I did appreciate that they brought forth this character because, I mean, in the early 2000s, people were a lot less aware of trans issues. It was not in the mainstream at all. So, uh, uh, I, granted, I haven't read the original comic, but I'm, I'm guessing it wasn't quite as big in the original comic. So I, I feel like if you are going to do something that where identity is based on chromosome, like you really have to deal with that issue. Otherwise, people are going to be very, very upset and there will be a lot of discourse. So I, I think that's probably, I think that's good. And I think it is, I do appreciate that this um, male, this trans man character is an actual prominent character with speaking lines and potentially a romance isn't just, you know, he's not just a little eunuch or anything as, as trans or queer people very often are in, in positive, diverse representation. Um, So I do like that, but I haven't seen enough of this this show. I've only seen the first four episodes, so it's hard to comment on it too much. 
Right. Uh, Brian, you can sort of tell us a little bit more about, about the difference, but also I'd be interested to know how you think the, the series yeah. is handling it. No, it's a, it's, 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 it's a variation of the, the, the theme I've been on, I guess. The, um, yeah, the, so, so trans people are in the, in the original comic, but only as kind of a background thing. Like, like Yorick passes um, every once in a while in the comic because people assume that he's trans. Like, that's how he gets by, um, ultimately. Um, but they don't really do anything with it. It's just kind of there, and it's it's like it like like it is with the bringing all the women to the fore. Um, it's cool to see that the show run, the showrunners now are are have given like this uh, g- you know given the story a way to actually develop this. Like with having a character involved who has like real agency and you know decision making possibilities and isn't just along for the ride. Um, and again, it's another way that I think that they, that they could do. There's a good chance that the that the series will do a better job with the issues that the comic raises because they're you know they're just putting the pieces together in the right way. And there are a lot of pieces, you know. Right. Right. The, the, so the showrunners have talked a little bit about this, and I don't know. I guess we don't really have too much time to get into that. But but yes, there. I actually love the way uh, the character uh, in in the series occasionally. Um, handles the question of like, who are you? Why are you alive? Uh, and yeah. the response is always, "Take a look at me. You figure it out." <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which I, I thought, mean, was, thought was a great answer. And like, I mean, again, with this comic, what's interesting is like, like the the, the comic got points, you know, fifteen years ago for being like fairly progressive for the way that it was just dealing with all of these things. It's pretty. It's 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 an interesting marker of just how far we've come in a relatively short time. You know that we're already looking at aspects of that comic as being like fairly retrograde, um, and that and it's cool that they get to do something with it now. All right. So the series is called Why. That's the letter. Uh, Why the Last Man. Uh, it's on FX Hulu Hulu FX FX. You just have to figure out. I think maybe Hulu would be the right way in, but they don't make it easier to find these things. Uh, and uh, I just would personally say I have had a hard time going to bed uh, when I'm supposed to because I want to watch one more episode. So um, I'm finding it pretty gripping anyway. So uh, we're going to take a little break. We're going to have kind of maybe not your typical nose conversation on the other side. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go Team. 
So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed. And in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. All right. Um, so if you've sort of been conscious, or conscious over the last few days, uh, you're probably aware of the, the very sad story of Gabby Petito um, and, uh, and the man who may have taken her life, uh, Brian Laundrie. Um, we'll say a little bit more about that in, in just a second. Our guest today, our Raquel Benedict, uh, claims to be the most dangerous woman in speculative fiction, and she's the host of the Right Good podcast, R-I-T-E. G-U-D. Uh, Brian Slattery is arts editor for the New Haven Independent and a producer at WNHH Radio, novelist, musician, etc. Um, so yes, uh, Gabby Petito and Brian Laundrie were uh, aspiring influencers on social media themselves, uh, specifically in an area called hashtag van life. Uh, and in July, they started a four-month cross-country trip in their camper-converted 2012 Ford Transit Connect van. They documented the trip uh, on uh, Gabby Petito's YouTube, uh, Nomadic Static, uh, and uh, both of their Instagrams. Um, and then something happened. Uh, and it would probably be a mistake to say that we know what happened, but it has now been confirmed uh, that she uh, is dead. Some remains that were found in Grand Teton National Park uh, turned out to be her. Uh, Brian Laundrie uh, is a person of interest, um, and a warrant has been issued uh, for his arrest. Um, but the part of this that we are going to focus on is the role that social media played in all this. There's a way in which uh, awareness of this case was driven to the fore by activities on TikTok, Reddit, Instagram. TikTok in particular played, seemed to play uh, a really significant role. We spent some time uh, either reading the transcript of or listening to a podcast on Slate called ICYMI uh, in which uh, they discussed um, all of that and talked to one of these TikTok influencers uh, about uh, about all of that. So, uh, Raquel, maybe just sort of get us going here. Um, I know one thing that you said as we were writing about this is that this might be the worst place to go to deal with something as serious as the violent death of a human being. Social media and TikTok in particular. I mean, TikTok videos are extraordinarily short. That's the appeal. It's low attention span theater. You watch a dog chase its tail for 30 seconds. Then you go and watch it. some people sing a sea shanty for 60 seconds. And then you watch some very strange life hacks for another 45 seconds. And that's not quite enough time to deal with a, a subject like this in a way that gives it the nuance and complexity and depth and sensitivity that's really, really warranted. Something that strikes me as so interesting is that there is very much like a true crime community on TikTok and, and a lot of talk on TikTok about human trafficking and, and kidnapping. And so many of these little anti-kidnapping tips and, and hints and supposed helpful information that most of it is is quite inaccurate. I remember getting a lot of these same tips in email forwards from like mom or grandma or my my auntie, like 15, 20 years ago and replying with a link to a Snopes article saying like, no, mom, that's not that that's not a thing. They don't they're not using drug dealers aren't using their blinkers to signal to each other to kidnap women. That's not. And it's back, but on TikTok. And it's so weird seeing these like 20 something year olds repeating 
the same misconceptions that my paranoid mom and auntie gave me <laughs> younger. And I thought, oh, those these silly middle-aged women, what do they know? It's like, no, you're young. You're supposed to be smarter than this. So, yeah, I, I you know, I, uh, I think, uh, Brian, a lot of what's happened in the world of true crime pro- podcasting and now spreading out into even more sort of fast twitch stuff like TikTok has kind of, as I think you said, given rise to this idea that anybody can do this. Anybody can do it. Um, we see it fictionalized. Last week, we were talking about the uh, series Only Murders in This Building, which is in which Steve Martin, uh, Selena Gomez, and Martin Short play people who are so seduced by true crime prop podcasts that when they find themselves in the middle of some murders, uh, they their natural instinct is to start a podcast. Um, so I, I don't know. Just reflect on that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, so as a as a journalist, also, I mean, we we I feel like we I have this conversation over and over again with people like this. So I get that we are in a moment of you know a place where we really distrust our institutions. Um, it's it to some extent it's something that I share. You know, like I I still have like that teenager distrust of authority thing going on, despite being forty six years old, and I I get it. Like I I get it that. You know our institutions are are flawed. Um, the people in them are are you know human beings with problems, et cetera, et cetera. Um, where I where I sort of get off the train though is the point where you know the idea that you can sort of like solve a crime after work, <laughs> like you can have like a nine to five job and then spend like maybe like an hour a day like solving a murder case. I I I don't understand like how we got to that to that leap. Um, and particularly if you, if you think of it in the case of true crime, I mean, like the, the gold standards of true crime things are the exact opposite of this, right? Like the like the the true crime stuff that is that is either pointed out that the police made a mistake or that the case is more, much more complicated than we are led to believe are projects that consumed the lives of the people who made who made these things, you know, for years. Like you think of like in cold blood, which you know may or may not have like ruined Truman Capote as he was writing it. Or you think of like Errol Morris's The Thin Blue Line, which, you know, which it's just this painstaking documentary, you know, showing showing how the case how a particular murder case went sideways. Um you know, these these things take time. Like even even beyond the idea of training and expertise, it's like a full time job solving a murder case. It's a full time job to do good investigative reporting and Somehow, um, we seem to have forgotten that, <laughs> and it, you know this is the point where like I become a very get off my lawn old man kind of thing. But it, I happen to actually believe it. You know that there are certain things that they were professionalized for a reason a long time ago, and we should have a little bit more um, uh, respect for that decision. <laughs> Yeah, so, I, yeah, I'm I'm of similarly of two minds, and I've spent my life in various journalistic pursuits and journalism jobs. Uh, I don't think I was ever exactly a crime reporter, but I certainly have covered crime in the past. And and you know, Raquel, one of the things that bothers me about this whole process is, yes, I, I feel exactly the same as Brian in that there are ways in which I feel as though my own profession has flaws and, and has kind of stodgy qualities and a way of kind of maybe gravitating towards 
uh, I, I don't know, orthodox consensus about a lot of stuff. Uh, on the other hand, we have rules for a reason. One of the things we don't typically do, although unfortunately news institutions are doing it more and more, I think, because they feel the heat from these other sources. We don't put up stuff that we don't know whether it's true or not and then kind of let it either find out more about it by people coming forward and saying, that's not what happened. That's totally wrong. Here's what happened. Uh, And then not correcting the stuff that we put up that wasn't true. Uh, And I mean, in other words, there's sort of a vetting process that goes on. And we also all develop kind of pretty good noses for things that we really need to check out more deeply and stuff like that. And I don't know, Raquel, it feels like there's almost a different process of getting to the truth now. And it involves kind of trial and order, trial and error and algorithms and having people say stuff in your comment threads. And, uh, you know, I don't know. I'm not comfortable with it, but I have the same question. I'm even older. I wonder if I'm just another old guy getting cranky. I mean, I I think you're absolutely right. And it's, it's difficult if you're a person of any kind of, I guess, sense trying to argue with it because... I mean, I don't think any of us would deny that the that journalism that our that our news media has some serious flaws, but that doesn't mean that some random TikTok account is just as good as someone who went to journalism school and is beheld into and, and is beheld is beheld in a word I don't know, <laughs> and is subject to broadcasting standards and has fact checkers and an editor to stop them if they're about to do something extremely irresponsible. And there's also the issue of treating a person's life as entertainment in the same way that you might engage in a fandom for a fictional TV show. Because the way a lot of this stuff unfolds, it, it's remarkably similar to me as the way that people engage in fandom for their favorite TV show. But this is a person. This was an actual person who lived and died. And you really need more sensitivity and, and more, I don't know, a sense of taste and responsibility before you run into this the way that you're the the way that you might i don't know binge watch lost or something trying to figure out how it's going to end i just dated myself with, by mentioning lost <laughs> super old by now and 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 it's this kind of thing this kind of rubbernecking can have real damage uh, some years ago during the boston bombing a reddit community claimed to have solved it and claimed to have identified the bomber and they got it completely wrong. They just identified some random dude as the bomber. And that's horribly dangerous to do something like that, to just decide for clout, for attention, for fun. I'm, I'm going to, yeah, that guy makes it is the most exciting possible culprit. Let's, let's focus on him. You know, first of all, I love the idea that Lost is dating yourself because I'm sitting here going, well, you know, there was an episode of Perry Mason, uh, uh, and I mean the Raymond Burr Perry Mason, too. Uh, But... but but anyway, I, you know, I, I think that we're we're touching about some things that are, are worth just kind of sticking pins into, and one of them is that idea of you know, can you keep the humanity uh, of the victim alive? I mean, even with something as carefully prepared as Serial, there was a real question about whether Heyman Lee, the victim uh, in, in of the murder, um, was as alive as the alleged perpetrator, the guy who, who had been in prison for it. Uh, there was a there's and, and that's you know. 
know, that's a pretty carefully curated picture. But I think they were open to that criticism. They let the left themselves open to that criticism that, that Heyman Lee didn't really live and breathe in quite the same way uh, that other characters in it do. The other thing I would quickly say, and then I'll just turn the floor back over to you guys, is there is the occasional outlier here. There is the occasional Michelle McNamara, who sometimes known as the, the the late wife of Patton Oswalt, but legitimately famous and accredited uh, and, and deserving of a lot of praise for her work in the Golden State Killer case, in which she really did actually figure out stuff that the cops were not figuring out and, and eventually won the admiration and cooperation uh, of the cops because she was just on this in, in a whole different way. There is a sense in which sometimes uh, the quote-unquote amateur can look at a situation and not chase consensus, not chase orthodoxy, uh, and figure something out that other everybody else is missing because they're, they're not used to thinking out of the box, to use the cliche. But I don't know. Brian, just go ahead and just take this wherever you want to go. Yeah. No, I mean, I... I... I definitely agree with you. Um, I think like the one of the silver linings of this, I certainly from a cultural perspective, is that I think just as the, I understand how this story started to become a big deal because the two of them are very good at social media, right? Like they had a lot of followers, so when something went wrong, there are a lot of people to say, "Hey, what went wrong?" Um, and I do think that like by the time this broke, now that you know, it's such a fast-moving story this way, but. I think that at the same time that it sort of broke into, you know, larger news outlets as a story that people were paying attention to, there it was followed very closely by people questioning why it was we were paying so much attention to this story. <laughs> like those, those two things like seem to have moved more or less hand in hand, which is, uh, you know, very reassuring. You know, like that immediately people bring up um the you know the Gwen Ifill's uh you know missing white woman thing, mm -hmm. um. You know, that they, of course, like, you know, that the, you know, that the news media cares a lot more about that than they do about missing black or brown people. Um, you know, and then also just the general sense of, like, why is it that this case is such a big deal? And, like, the as we're doing right now, the magnifying glass has been turned onto the engine of that sort of, like, grotesque publicity. <laughs> you know, and not just about, not just about, uh, you know, how to solve the case, but also, um, you know, whether she, whether we should be paying quite this much attention to it, right? And then there's a and, there's and a, whether news outlets are right to be right. spending so much time on it. And yeah, and and as you're suggesting, there's a there's a sort of a meta problem with that too, which is it came up with Jennifer Dulos too. Although I didn't notice with Jennifer Dulos as many yeah. people citing uh, Gwen Ifill's missing white woman syndrome thing. But there was the problem of if you started to do some commentary about the media paying too much attention to that story, you became part of that problem to a certain degree because there's yeah, no way to do that right. without kind of repeating as all of this. As we have just become. As we have just become that part of that problem. <laughs> part of the problem. Right. And so, Raquel, as we sort of get ready to wrap up this segment, I do want to maybe just have, have you react. And I'll, I'll just tell you that as of right now, the hashtag um, Gabby Petito uh, on TikTok has more than 965 million views. So oh, in a way, whatever it is that we're talking about, it's the horse is out of the barn, the ship is sailed. I mean, we're, this is the world we're living in, whether we, we like it or not. For night, now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I miss when TikTok was just doing sea shanties. That was a good month. Right. <laughs> that was that was all right. That was healthy. Right. You just you, singing pirate songs. That right. Was good. Uh, you can't you can't keep them saying arg uh, forever. They're That's gonna right. they're gonna do other stuff. Squirrel all right. Obstacle courses. Um, why don't we stop here? We'll take a quick break. We'll come back. We'll make some endorsements. I'm gonna have to think of one. 
All right. Uh, we are back. Before we make some recommendations to you, uh, I want to thank Kat Pastor. She's here in the studio with me, our technical producer, making sure that everything uh, goes just great. Uh, and Jonathan McPants is, as usual, the producer of this episode. He always does the nose, uh, except on those rare occasions when he doesn't do the nose. Uh, and uh, also, obviously, thanks to uh, these two fine pa- panelists, uh, and uh, Raquel Benedict and uh, Brian Slattery. They're going to make some recommendations for you right now, uh, and I guess I am too. Uh, but Brian, why don't you get us going? You have kind of an unusual choice, but I, I like it. So, um, ironically, as someone who's commenting on culture right now, I've spent a lot of time um, staying away from people and screens and media altogether. And in the past now a couple of years, um, I'm spending a lot of time in the woods. Um, one of the books that, it, and I've you know I've also ripped up all the grass and I'm planting trees and doing all this you know Loraxy kind of stuff. But the one of the books that I've read in the course of getting into all of this stuff is this pretty mind-blowing book called Finding the Mother Tree, Discovering the Wisdom of the Forest. Um, it's the super hippy-dippy title doesn't prepare you for how rigorous this book is and how beautifully written it is. Um, it's written by a scientist named Suzanne Simard. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Um, who pioneered the research into forest ecology that shows that plants and fungal networks are actually in this kind of like great state of communication with one another and that there's sort of like competition and cooperation and sharing of resources and allocation of things like, you know, all the nutrients in the soil that, um, you know, has all of this like real scientific rigor behind it. And at the same time is, is as the author points out, sort of finding the science behind the things that uh, native American groups, um, sort of new from experience and from observation. So she she's able to do this kind of, she's able to write this amazing book about science, but also about sort of like our relationship to the environments. Um, and, you know, very early on in the book, she has a line that says, this is not a book about how we can save the trees. This is a book about how the trees can save us, um, which sounds like a very far blown statement. But by the end of the book, she has backed that up, <laughs> you know, mm. beyond all reasonable expectation. And it's definitely worth reading. It's called Finding the Mother Tree by Suzanne Simard. Great recommendation. This is going to be a tough act for the other two of us to follow. Uh, but uh, <laughs> So, Raquel, what have you got for us? Well, I will recommend an upcoming novel by a friend of mine, Gretchen Felker-Martin. It's got a very similar, I guess, premise to Why the Last Man. It's called Manhunt, and it is an apocalyptic or post-apocalyptic novel about a world in which There's some sort of strange, unexpected mutation in testosterone, and any creature with enough testosterone becomes a, well, I guess any human creature, any any man with enough testosterone becomes a feral, cannibalistic monster. And our main characters are a pair of trans women who are trying to keep their bodies with enough uh, enough estrogen to prevent themselves from turning into monster cannibals. And it's terrifically fun and very pulpy and very grit and very gritty, and it comes out in February. All right, so uh, so make a note and get ready. Uh, see the name of the novel again. <laughs> it's Manhunt. Uh, all right, so 
I guess one of the things, first of all, I will endorse uh, the Naomi Alderman novel, The Power, which I think we might have even dedicated an episode of either, of either The Nose or something else to. Uh, and, and it also deals with this question of what happens when when really the kind of power dynamics that have dominated human civilization are reversed and women get, get you know, way more power than men. Uh, and this also happens through kind of supernatural means in this. Uh, and it's pretty terrific. And, and her approach is very interesting. And she she has said in interviews, too, that the way that she thinks of it, it really is power as opposed to sex and gender that, that corrupts, um, that basically if you gave women the same amount of power, they kind of divide along similar lines to men anyway. Some of them would abuse it. Some of them wouldn't. Uh, but um, And then I think I will also just wanted to maybe just say a quick word about Diane Lane, who does play the the president uh, in um, sort of the accidental president in Why the Last Man. She's had such an interesting career. And I, I think I've always thought she hasn't had the career that, that she might have had. Um, and I guess there are some explanations uh, for that having to do with a couple of uh, projects she was attached to that kind of cratered. Uh, but I, many people met her, uh, encountered her for the first time in those uh, Coppola uh, adaptations of S.E. Hinton novels uh, that she was in uh, as, a, as a very, very young woman. I will probably mainly remember her uh, from Lonesome Dove, where she played the character, I believe, named Lori. Um, but she's a really, really good actor um, who I sort of feel like maybe ultimately hasn't had the projects uh, that she might have had otherwise. Uh, and I also like the fact that in this role, and I think it's sort of – true going forward. She appears to be very comfortable looking her own age, you know, which I, I think must be especially challenging if, I mean, I think the first big movie part she had, she was 14 years old. Uh, so she is uh, comfortable looking her own age. It looks like she's not going to have like a lot of work done and wind up looking weird or anything like that. Uh, and and I think she really is uh, a very powerful performer. So um, she's, a, she's a very good reason. I mean, I wish I could r- recommend like eight other really terrific Diane Lane movies, but I I don't think there are eight other terrific Diane Lane movies, and I, I don't think that's her fault. I think that the work just hasn't come that way. But when you see her in stuff, um, she's she's often pretty memorable. Uh, all right. Well, listen, <laughs> thanks so much for listening to today, today's show. Uh, I am thrilled that I got through it, uh, and I am thrilled to get a chance to uh, work with Brian and Raquel. They are a great combination, the two of them. Uh, you'll see them combined here again, I'm very sure. So enjoy your weekends. If, in fact, you're listening on Friday, tell the other people they can get this as a podcast on any podcasting platform that they use just find the Colin McEnroe show and there we will be Yeah, 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 yeah.